0: Welcome to Dragon Talk, everybody!
1: Hey, Dragon Talk! This is
0: the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. And as Shelly said, I am Greg Tito, and you are Shelly Mazanoble.
2: Oh, I'm not.
0: (laughs) You're not noble?
2: I'm Mazanoble.
0: Noble. I know. In In some
2: worlds, yes, that's probably how they say it.
1: In,
0: um, in Faerun, that's how they say it.
2: Yeah, noble, yes, noble. I'm very noble there.
0: Very glad that you are, and I'm glad that we are crossing the threshold into post-D&D Live 2021. Wow. What an exciting event. Oh it my was God. so cool to see all of the D&D games played, all of the interviews about uh, uh, Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons.
2: Yes, what? we were holding that one a little. Yeah, keeping James a little secret Wyatt from you.
0: It's knocking that one out of the park all about the, the dragons. Not necessarily about any specific setting. It's how dragons are a part of the D&D uh, DNA. I mean, it's in it's half of the name of the <laughs> of the game. Um and it's super cool. I love that there's new gem dragons, there's dragonborn lineages uh with the gem dragons using some Fun psionics, there's monsters, there's different layers of maps that you can use in each, uh, you know, one of the, the the varieties of chromatic dragons out there. It's just chock full of stuff that you can add and it's all, you know, shown in the voice of Fizban, uh, who is a character from Dragonlance, it might be an avatar of Paladine, who may be an avatar of Bahamut, Whoa. one of the ancient dragon gods, uh, the counter the good counterpart to the evil tiamat. Uh so uh it's really funny because Amy Vorpel wrote many of the lines of FizzBand that are gonna be in that book coming out October nineteenth.
2: Very exciting. Amy, um it's kind of the summer of Amy.
0: <laughs> it's the summer of Amy too. <laughs>
2: She wrote uh, a lot of what we saw on D&D Live.
0: That's right. Yeah. She was the screenwriter. She came up with a lot of the uh, segments, uh, you know, kind of as a uh, you know concept. Um, so it was a lot of the Dungeon Master stuff you might have seen as well as all of the banter. Not all the banter, but, you know, the, the framework of the ban- banter for uh, the amazing hosts. How great was B-Dave, Becca? The best. Uh, and Mika, they just knocked it out of the park. Uh, very, very fun and entertaining. And I swear, amongst the three of them, I think they ate at least four bags of Nerds D D gummy clusters. Oh
2: my god, those gummy clusters! Can we just talk about gummy clusters?
0: I I snagged a bag, and I like it was gone. Uh, just you know, the by the end of the night, just eating it in bed because they're just so chewy. Why are and they delicious.
2: so good though? I don't I don't even eat Nerds candy usually.
0: They're enchanted. I don't usually like that kind of candy either. And it's like for some reason just like the thing that I need in my mouth at any moment.
2: And how good are they going to be this fall when Dungeons & Dragons is all over that packaging?
0: All over the packaging. Plus there's tons of adventure content that parents or anybody can just play one-on-one with someone who's perhaps new to D&D. They're like 45-minute adventures. There's six of them. And if you get them from the website, then you will be able to download a seventh, third-level adventure. And all of them are written by Kat Kruger, friend of Dragon Talk.
2: Yes, and they're wonderful. This is, there's really good stories. There is really good content here that y'all are just going to be able to download with the purchase of specially marked Dungeons and Dragons branded um, Nerds candy but I mean that's like a dollar right? Like, they're not, it's like you don't have to buy a car you're buying some I Nerds candy entering, which you're buying anyway. We're uh,
0: entering that realm of I was a kid where like if you just have a you know proof of purchase and you send it uh, off to Battle Creek, Michigan you'll um, get your toy.
2: I got ripped off. <laughs> I
0: So many times. Bazooka gum
2: still owes me a camera. I sent <laughs> back my mom was like, It's not gonna work. They're not gonna send it to him I'm like yes, they will. It says right here they will. And she was like, Here you go, here's punches. your ten cent stamp. Because back then stamps were probably like ten cents. Yeah. Here you go, put it in an envelope. Never got the damn camera.
0: You know what I had to explain yesterday when you're always like, What are you my kids ask me questions? Uh Edna asked me what inflation was. Oh What's inflation? I'm like, Oh gosh.
2: Uh where'd she even
0: She read a headline that said something about uh inflation in it and she's like, What's inflation? I'm like, I you know, it's money's stuff gets less valuable Uh, number wise as time goes on. I don't know. That's when
2: I say that's a great question. Ask Alexa. (laughs) Alexa,
0: (laughs) Yeah, and then she'd be like, You inflate your tires to 90 PSI each day. Like, I'm like, oh dang it. Yeah. Um but
2: sorry about the the weed whacking,
0: by the way. <laughs> oh, I can't even hear it. No oh, Okay,
2: problem. good. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Ryan. Um,
0: I was just going to do one of my amazing segues and you ruined it. So, oh, sorry oh. about that. How about Sorry. Sorry.
1: Sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I can't wait to ask those type of questions to our guest this week. Um, it is, I mean, I love writing. I love screen writing. I love uh, the crafting of a story. Uh, that we do in Dungeons and Dragons as well as, as uh, in fiction around it. And Jamie Nash is a screenwriter and longtime D&D player, and we pick his brain about those two mediums uh, and, and how they really can inform the, each other, and it's really fascinating, and I can't wait for you to listen.
2: I agree. Save the cat. Name Save box. the cat. And I know for a fact that you don't like cats. So
0: <laughs> I love cats and tabaxis.
2: You like tabaxis, but you don't like cats.
0: I love cats. I'm just allergic to them. Well, I actually uh, would uh, be a cat person. I would be a cat lady if I had the chance. I would have five of them. I would have to give them all fun names. Really? Yeah, totally. I just dare. but but if I touch them and then I touch my face, I will sneeze and be irritated for days. So I can't. So my but-
2: cat tempts you. Like when you see her, you're like, oh, I wish I could pick up that fuzzy little. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Have you seen it's that? Really uh, there's a cat documentary series on uh, on Netflix. And it's the, all people who just love their the, cats. the, and the create cat show? Art. Yeah, create art around cats. Like there's a cat rapper. There's a cat uh, artist, a uh, sculptor really from Japan who creates frames uh, of full-on lifelike 3D images of cats. It's amazing. Wow. Wow. Uh, but yeah, and, I, and the, all of them are all like, and like kissing them, and I would, like, I would totally do that. I really? love cats, but I can't. I'm
2: shocked. This is a new thing I didn't know. I, I knew you were allergic, but I also just thought you hated them.
0: No, no, I, I don't. I don't like dogs. I'm not a big dog person.
2: <laughs> who, who doesn't like dogs? <laughs> Cat people. <laughs> How can you just be like, I don't like dogs. Dogs are dumb. Eh, you know, I
0: mean, I've seen a cute one every once in a while, but most of the time I'm just like, why are you slobbering on me? Get oh, away. my God.
2: Not There's puppy. Love.
0: Not puppy, no. He doesn't slobber. He just jumps.
2: He's a jumper, though, yeah. Yeah. Which is sometimes okay. It's really When not. you're in the mood. No, I'm never in the mood for that.
0: For getting jumped by no. a
2: dog. <laughs> getting jumped by a dog. <laughs> you're
0: like, ah, God, no. Why are your claws so long? I also had a friend who... uh had a big dog like i don't even know what a breed it was probably just a mutt but a big dog and they they didn't clip its nails
2: yeah
0: eh, enough so they couldn't they like once they grow enough like if you clip them they'll like bleed and you know it's it's like really bad so it's just like oh we can't clip his nails anymore and he would he was a jumper and he would jump and like literally i would open the door and be like hey i'm here and hang out and then like get like clawed by a dog and yeah. so
2: yes I have lots my of neighbor memories. has a dog that he weighs over 100 pounds He's enormous, and when you come over, he, like, bounds for the door, and he's, like, he'll push you over and, like, get his toys and try to hit, like, get you to play with the toys, but he's really, like, smacking you with the toys, and he has actually, like, knocked me off my feet. Like, he'll come up behind me like a bull, and he'll, like, like just flip me, and I just go down. Like, this, it's... Very.
0: He like knows how to put his nose like right in your knee. Yes. Right? Like when you're like whoa, and, and then
2: like lifts up so that he like literally like <laughs> takes you up off of your feet. And the weird thing is that when he's around Quinn, he's super gentle. Like he doesn't bark at him. He brings toys right to Quinn's feet and drops them. He just like is very gingerly like but aggressive around, around you. Him. But like any adult, he's like yes. He just comes at us.
0: Not aggressive.
2: He's playful, but he, he's also like 120 pounds.
0: Well, I think what you really need to get is a blink dog, uh, which can uh, teleport to where you need it to be, but otherwise stays far away from you. That's that's my.
2: my Maybe tra- you could get like a blink cat.
0: <gasps> oh, now I want to design a blink cat. Yeah. All right.
2: Okay. Wheels. I'm are sure turning. that like this was definitely an intro that a lot of people are going to love. It was very interesting. (laughs)
0: We talked. We do D&D Live. (laughs) We do hosts. We do screenwriting. We do pet talk with (laughs) Shelly and Greg. Uh, And now it's time to move to how to DM. And you have one of my favorite people.
2: This will be an interesting one. Satine Phoenix. Hello. Hello. Maybe one of the greatest dungeon masters of all time. And she's agreed to talk to little old me. And, and I got to, to be a see DM.
0: Her in the flesh uh, during D&D Live. It was amazing. We got to hug. Uh, oh, we were all I'm vaccinated, so doing all COVID protocols, and it was very, very cathartic because I hadn't seen her in such a long time, and she's such a wonderful person, and I can't and wait I'm for sure... you to see
2: uh, her oh, DM And I really hope that advice. the long guys are done before this. Me too, me too. But Let's take a listen. everyone and welcome to how to be a DM. I'm here with one of my most favorite people in the whole world. That's why I have to speak with a really high pitched voice. Satine Phoenix, a wonderful human being who needs really no introduction, but let's give her one anyway. Professional dungeon master, storytelling coach. Love that. And event creator of Satine's Quest, an all-inclusive luxury travel gaming adventures. There is literally (laughs) nothing that you cannot do. And I know your bio could actually take 25 minutes because you've done so many wonderful things, but Satine... You're yes. here. And it's my turn to talk in a very high-pitched voice because
1: I'm so excited to see you. I, and um, <laughs> I do want to start, though, by letting everyone know that you inspired me with your books. That's crazy. Yeah. I like it's to tell literally. you that every single time I see you. <laughs> and I appreciate
2: that. I really do. I'm not going to lie. But I still, like, <laughs> it blows my mind because I, no. I remember, like, our first conversation when we first communicated and
1: I was like I was shaky what I was nervous and then you were like she's such a dork and I was like we're gonna get along great (laughs) (laughs) we're all dorks
2: here oh it's the best and I remember like hugging you oh my gosh just I mean we could just reminisce about yeah those good old days but But we're here for business we're here for business and really (laughs) um you are a huge inspiration to so many people uh you're you have done you have You've done millions of things. You've like been on millions of streams as a player, as a dungeon master. You've done um, GM tips with Geek and Sundry. You've done. I mean, you you are the epitome of dungeon master and, I just and a like person who <laughs> you do. But you're also so generous with oh, thank you. with. But I will say, having all said that, I have played in in a game where you've DM'd. Was that Gary Khan a few years ago? And uh, my character failed uh, on an attack roll. Maybe I got a one. I don't know what happened. And instead of just being like, "No, you didn't. You did not make the uh, the attack," and move on, you were like, "No, yeah, you failed at that. And your arrow bounced off a tree, and it hits you, and you take seven points of damage." And I was like, <laughs> "What? <laughs> I'm sorry. What kind of D D are we playing here?" And then I very quickly realized, oh, my God, that's awesome. (laughs) Like, now I actually want to fail because that's now a part of the story. We did not just move on. And I thought that was so unique. No one's ever done that to me
1: before. (laughs) Thanks. I don't like it when people get sad. And so I try to make light of the situation and yet also consequences. And so when you push consequences really far... It can actually go beyond pain into fun, and so for you, that is probably one of my favorite house rules is if you roll a one, you have to roll damage and tell everyone how you hit yourself <laughs> okay then
2: that then I must have rolled a one for it because I it oh was, you yeah it was you a, totally rolled a one <laughs> a, a a pretty spectacular failure um but it's weird that I want more reality in my fantasy. But, like, (laughs) in real life, like, if you... The equivalent of a real life one probably would be, like, you did something really (laughs) kind of stupid and fell down and hurt yourself or your arrow bounced off a tree and it bounced back and hit you in the face. Like, (laughs) and I want that in my fantasy game. I really, really do.
1: Yeah, it's really fun. Um, It causes the other players to really pay attention your party member got hurt. How can we be more present so that that doesn't happen again? Um I do another one where it, in a very similar vein of people coming to each other's aid. and this one's more of a like at the table like physical table where if you drop your dice, you get disadvantaged. and I've seen oh. other players. <laughs> jump to save their friend's dice from falling on the ground. And it's all this like role for story. It's role for cooperation, uh, role for I, not shaming people <laughs> no. for the things that they can't do. Okay, or,
2: that's yeah. amazing. So where did this idea, where did this come from? Like, Why did you start incorporating these things into your games?
1: When people roll low, I notice that they shut down. And my whole thing is open vulnerability. I am, a, I am the most vulnerable person and I love it. And um, I, I kind of like take things that the high and low points and I'll take a low point and I smack that right in the butt and I make it go way up high. And I kind of want to share that with people. So when I show people there's a fun consequence that can happen if you don't make something, it gives everyone else an opportunity to overcome the obstacle. It's a hero's journey, right? So study a lot of hero's journey. Uh, It's how to make a really fun and interesting game. So in storytelling, you have to have a lot of lows in order to make the highs really high. And so that's kind of where it all came from. It's how do I make these things that usually make people sad, make them funny or interesting and even further when I ask the player to tell me how they hurt themselves they are so much more creative than I am I'm like yeah you stub your toe they're like I lost a foot I'm like whoa Ah, okay Ah. (laughs) all right we're going with that Uh, there was one that was really funny uh my friend he's very muscular very deep voice this guy's like a man's man and we played this game and I told him to do that and he, and he hit himself for a lot of damage. And essentially he, he's, and I think this is on camera. He's like, yeah, this, the guy's just running towards me with this like spear and I just walk right into it, but it was like a goblin. And he was like six, five. And he just like pokes me in the balls. And I'm like, Whoa, I would never do that to you. And everyone else loved it. And it kind of gave that person an opportunity. It's like, he could have hit and succeeded and knocked the guy's head off. And the other side of that, the failure that's equal to, you know, cutting a, a monster's head off is I had some really crazy thing happen to me that no one else could think about. And also, I would never say that. And right. It's so much more fun when they think of it. <laughs> is
2: it. Is it like like war wounds or something? Like we just want to like go down in the most spectacular way
1: as a, yes. as a player. Yeah, exactly. It's people want epicness, and you can get epicness from highs and lows. I'd really like to push that. I'm, I'm, you know, I see a lot of people run games. I want people to cry. (laughs) I want them to laugh. I want them to squeal. I want them to, you know, stand in their chair and cower. Like, I want all of these cartoonish feelings. And so, by allowing your players to, hyper succeed and hyper fail, it's it just gets them into the game. And those are the memories that you take with you that you talk about online and forums on when you're at family gatherings. I don't know. That's what I that's what I talk about during family gatherings. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, you know,
2: it's it's oftentimes not even the the victories that our party has had that we like to recap we like to talk about the time like that we were almost overtaken by kobolds and like this yeah. because everybody rolled really low and the wizard or what you know was out of spell like what like there's just the, the the comedy of errors like those are the kind of stories that i think are really funny um but you are very masterful in how you weave the highs and the lows into your games and like in they they are very emotional and as i think for new dungeon masters that's it could be a little bit daunting to know like well, how much how much low do i give him before i have to you know bring it back up and how do you balance all of that type of emotions
1: well i really i am a story coach and dungeon master coach and i always tell people you're not going to get it right at first there's many things that you have to learn to get to that point and it's about practice and repetition and you know, like re- run an adventure and then run it again, run it better and then run it again, run it better. And then pay attention on how everyone, once you feel confident that you like, oh, I remembered everything. I hit all the beats. I got my monster stats, right? I actually remembered if somebody was prone or blinded and I got this right finally. And then it's time to really pay attention to your players because you are going to be paying attention to your players when you're running these games. But if you've never Dungeon Master before, sometimes you really need to focus on one thing and then the next and then the next. So to get to the sateen, <laughs> you have to start. And so you pick up your module and then watch your players. So uh, when I'm around a table, and this is not something that you see on virtual games, it's very hard for me to do this in virtual games around a table. I am so open and that makes everyone else at the table open so much that I can feel when someone's sad and I can feel when somebody is like really happy or erratic or whatever emotions I'm actually like, energetically projecting and bouncing energy off and with other people. This is a magical thing that a lot of game masters do, a lot of actors, stage actors can do. And you see that and and it's easy that way. Virtual gaming is a little bit harder. So you kind of have to keep practicing. For virtual gaming, you have to pay attention to how people look, their demeanor, whether they're slightly askew from the camera and looking at a website that's not, you know, you could tell, I can tell whether someone's paying attention. You can see if someone's on their phone. So all all these little nuanced things, all the listening that you do as a game master, this is all through training. Pretend you're going to suck until adventure number 10 and just get it under your belt. You know, I went to art school and this is kind of the thing that they teach you. Do the thing over and over. And every time you do it, creatively and um, purposefully critique yourself, but not in a shame way. I'm a bad person. It's a, every time I do this, I'm going to get better. And I'm only going to get better if I can identify the things that I can be better at. So there's a lot of removing of your ego. There's a lot. It takes, it, it's It's a lot at first. It seems like a lot at first. It actually isn't. Um, it's like riding a bike. It, you have to get on the bike. You have to try. You're going to fall down. It's like rollerblading, roller skating. I don't know. What else can you do that you fall down? Rock yeah. climbing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so. Once you get through that, the 10 one shots, and I mean like two hour one shot, you don't have to go and create a big campaign. It's all about practice. Then really. Uh, then you can kind of identify who's quiet and then you start pulling information out of them. It might not take you 10, but pretend it does take you 10. Uh, the quiet person, you start asking them appropriate questions and getting them to come out of their shell. You can tell the group's dynamic, whether they're super fun and lively or they want a dark story. And then you can kind of feed them little bits and then they feed you little bits. And then you go back and it's this beautiful cooperative um, adventure where people like you, the game master are pretty much just holding up a platter and letting everyone kind of play with everything on the platter. Uh, but yeah, it, it does take just starting and you're not going to be an expert in the beginning. It will take time, but you know, when you fail, just don't crawl into a shell, just, you know, brush off and go, I'm going to do this again. And then do it again, and then do it again, and suddenly you're like, "I was born for this. This is the most fun. This is way more fun than playing.
2: I can't stop."
1: (laughs) I think I hope that explained it.
2: (laughs) Yes, it does, and it's I. You you said a lot of things that I I think are important, like the failure. Just expect to fail, and I think. It's kind of a. It seems like a backwards way to go into something. Like I know I'm going to screw this up and suck at it, but knowing that like it's a long term process, and I think yeah. that's that's okay. I did not go into my my one time. No, there was like three times that I've DM'd, but that one that was like really bad that like scarred me for time. Like <laughs> that one I didn't go into it thinking I'm going to fail at this at all. I because I, I thought I was really really prepared for it. Um, but and the other thing is the removal. Of, of ego, and I think that's also really important because I, I, I think I got my feelings hurt that I was Aww. so bad at it, even though the players, they were so kind. Nobody really made me feel bad. It was me that made me feel bad.
1: Do you remember Tomb of Annihilation d d Live up in Seattle? Yes. I cried after that game. I I was so hard on myself. I think Greg came up to me to give me a big hug and I just burst into tears. I was like, I was terrible. I can't believe it. I was so nervous. No, it didn't go right. I, I freaked out. And oh, then no. yeah, I was like, and then Greg's like, oh gosh, uh hugs. <laughs> <laughs> But, Aww. you know, I went back that night and over the la- next like four to five days, and I kind of went back through it all. And then I realized that, you know, everyone said I did fine. I am my hardest critic. Yeah. And if I don't learn from what I thought was bad, then I will never get better. So I dissected it, I watched it over and over, you, and over. You did? You watched it?
2: Yeah. I had to well, learn. Was it, was it as bad as you thought it was? No. Yeah, that's not that even a little me.
1: bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are big cameras. Are really big cameras. <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: yeah, I that is always. Although there's always a little bit of truth in that too. When you think you've done something, just oh, it's the worst thing ever. If you can bring yourself to go back and, and watch it, or re-listen to it, or or reread it, or whatever that thing is. Um, you often are surprised that it wasn't that bad in the moment that it was happening.
1: But. Yeah, because it's all about your head, where you yeah. are in your head. I was nervous because it was a massive show. That was like, it was like 22,000 people watching it. And yeah. I, all I could do was sweat. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I remember you being wonderful. so Thank
1: you. We all... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. but it all goes to like, you know... It's okay if you're not prepared. It's okay if you don't remember your stuff. Because I didn't know that at that point. I was like, I am not Chris Perkins or Jeremy Crawford. You're not literally
2: writing those rules. Literally writing those
1: rules. (laughs) And it's got to be okay that I'm going to fail. So I think right before that, I got in a car accident. So like two years before I got in a car accident. I've been dungeon mastering for like six years before Meltdown Comics. But I got in this car accident and I couldn't think and I couldn't remember anything. Six months, I had to rehabilitate my brain. And then it took about two years after that to like really come to, you know, back all the way up. And I'm taking nootropics and I'm doing all this stuff, but I really wanted to game master. I could barely play. I could barely get in front of the camera. This is like right before GM tips. So this is like, yeah, it's like right before that. And there was a moment where I'm gaming at the at the game store and I was like, look, I really want to do this. I have brain damage. I need help. Um, I need someone to, to add because I at that point I couldn't even add or subtract. Oh, like wow. nine plus one was 91. Like that's just my brain just kept hitting this wall. But um, when I was vulnerable to them and said, I need help doing this, I need help doing this but I think I have everything else. Of course, I got my Dungeon Master screen, so that really helps. and They're like, we just want to play, so let's just do it. I'll, I'll keep track of initiative. I'll keep track of points and I'll add up numbers. And it became a thing where... I could relax and all that fear that I had kind of went out the window and I just had a really fun time with my friends, you know, and, and then there's something really beautiful about that vulnerability. And I will keep saying vulnerability, Yeah. the more positive energy you put out there, the more child likeness that you have, and you can just sit on the table and like, all right, I don't know what you've been up to for the last you know, day, but we are here for three hours. This is my free time. This is your free time. Let's just go all in and really open up with one another. And then by practicing that opening and saying, you know, I am portraying a goofy character that's gonna fall on their face and break their teeth. Now, other people at the table can say, oh, that's okay for them to do that. They don't actually look bad when they're doing it. I guess I can do that too. And when one person does that, another person does that. And suddenly they're telling each other's character secrets and all these events and holding each other and and celebrating each other. And you can only really do that when you're vulnerable. And to be vulnerable is to be present, to listen to everybody, to remove your ego, to not give a damn, you know, that you, you're you're in the middle of a speech and your nose is running you know i say that cuz my nose is running right now <laughs> <laughs> and nobody Vulnerability. cares and yeah. we don't care. <laughs> nobody cares you know it's like people are so afraid of looking stupid but there is no looking stupid
2: yeah that is hugely important i know especially with new players especially with adults mm-hmm. um cuz it's you know a kid can just be like okay i'm a spider I'm, i i get this i can do that but an adult, and when you say role-playing to an adult, they're like, you know, it, there's a lot of different connotations that'll pop into their mind. Or they're I like, would never. I would <laughs> never do that. Like, I'm not in therapy. Or um, I'm not going to use a voice. Do you need me to wear a costume? There is that fear of vulnerability. There is that fear of of looking silly, screwing up a rule or something. Um, I see it happen all the time. Like, why? That's that's often even a barrier – for some people as to why they say, like, I don't want to play D&D. I don't want to have to, you know, act silly.
1: Well, and it's, it's, like, it's a trigger, right? So I yeah. notice a lot of adults get triggered very easily. And I'm not saying that as a shame thing. This is a thing. I get triggered very easily for a whole lot of things outside of D&D. But um, vulnerability is hard for people because growing up they were shamed by their parents they were shamed by their siblings cousins family members bullies at school uh, peers at work and there's a lot of shaming that goes on outside and it causes these walls around people and it's really hard to break down those walls the older you get it is it that, that's fact yeah. and once you get past breaking through some walls you're like okay i'm going to sit at a table but then you still have other walls up, right? Because you have to protect yourself. But people don't know how to exercise their walls. Sateen Phoenix has a lot of walls. At the game table, I have very few walls. The moment I step away from my game table, I have my adult boundaries. Well, actually, at the table, I have other boundaries. I have very yeah. game table boundaries. Um, but when I step away, I have another set of boundaries that I put up so that I can function every day. But um, it is hard to be triggered. When you were so open, right? So you're sitting at a table, you do a voice, one person laughs. Suddenly, you go all the way back into high school when you sneezed while, during a test and everyone started laughing at you. And you went to grab your books and they all fell down and you just kept making more noise. And it's you, uh, the triggers act as this like projection from past. Um, circumstances that get inserted into the game. So that these people um, are really living it. I study a lot of like um, PTSD recovery, and this is like a thing that happens mm-hmm. when, when you are open with a group of people. So that vulnerability, that those triggers, they become visceral and real. And so it's important. So what I try to teach people is, you know, everybody sitting at the table has an entire history of experiences and triggers and traumas. But for these two, three, four, six hours, we are here together. And when somebody gets triggered, I try to coach everybody else to kind of hold a space for that person. And if I notice that somebody's triggered at my table, I kind of and they don't give me a yellow or a red because I use the red, yellow, green, um, X card system. If they don't give that to me, I kind of pull away from them, let them kind of sit in their thing. And I move the attention over to another group of people. And then I'll test that person and kind of bring them back out of it. It's, it is dungeon mastering for beginners it's hard just doing dungeon mastering. And as you get more experience, you realize how amazing it is to create a safe place for people to be able to go back into their childhood and feel safe. And that is what we do. And that's why I'm so freaking optimistic all the time and positive, because it's all I want to do is to get people to overcome their traumas and be able to uh, be these characters and overcome the obstacles that give them the courage to be able to go to therapy and deal with their traumas that they weren't able to do before because they're so used to being in this like closed uh, wall that they're that has protected them for so long.
2: Yeah, and we, I think you're exactly right. We hear we hear that a lot from people that say playing D and D has helped them address these things that either they knew needed to be addressed or some things that they didn't even realize about themselves. And they've, that's all been discovered through play. But in order to get to that space, you do need to have, you need to feel safe with your group and with your dungeon master. And I mean, even if, if you're sitting here listening and you're like, dude, I just want to play. I just want my players to have fun. I don't, you know, that's cool too, but you still have to set that, that tone Either explicitly with like words or as the dungeon master, you show, not necessarily tell. So you still have to like like you're saying, you have to be vulnerable as the yeah. dungeon master. Because you, you can have feel to, it.
1: Yeah. You can feel it when a dungeon master is closed off because they're like, this is my story. And you're like, No, it's not. It's go, all, I don't, don't want to screw up
2: your story. So I'm not really gonna veer off this path. I'm not gonna try anything. But you, yeah, but if you don't try anything, you don't level up, you know, like you got to try. You got to do You did, like, that thing, like, in that game, when you made me roll for dance, <laughs> but you literally gave me, and I think everyone else at the table had already played with you before, but you gave me the permission to fail, and that is such an important thing for a player to just, to have, to just, like, own, like, feel it, own it, look forward to it, even in a way, because it's now part of the story. You have... Your character has left a mark on literally on themselves, <laughs> but like on the story as well. And it's just I think it's it was a super cool way to keep me invested and also just whew, I, I mean I I feel like I just uh, sighed at the table at that moment. Because I was playing with new new to me people. I, um, yeah. Maybe maybe Chris Lindsay was one of the players, but everyone else. And that always makes me a little nervous too. Like,
1: I don't know these people. And, but then what uh, happened next? After you relaxed, you opened up and were more courageous. Oh, absolutely,
2: absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And I just stopped worrying about like, I I I don't care what they what people. It's always like for me, like, what do they think of me? Am I am I a bad role player? Is this a dumb voice? Should I be using a voice? Is my do they think my character stupid? Like, really? Really? That's what you think? A lot of times, yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but I felt I felt very much like okay. I just I just rolled a one and I don't
1: care anymore.
2: It was freeing. It was the great. power
1: of failure. <laughs> I, yeah, it is. It is like just, well, it's like you can't win D and D. Just because you kill everything and you succeed doesn't mean you won D and D. It I, actually means you probably have missed out on some things that you would have found out about if you had failed. So as a game master, I will set things up. If they fail this mission, this is the consequence. So you get something, whether you win or you fail. It's just, what is that something? And, you know, people are very used to, oh gosh, I failed. I'm going to get kicked out of the group and go home. No, that's not how D&D works. (laughs) There's just something else for you to fight or, you know, someone else for you to save.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, now you also have another part of the story that maybe you would not have discovered if you had
1: succeeded. So, oh man, as a game master, are you kidding me? Yeah. If you have players fail, 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 my husband and I, we play couples D&D together. I mean, this man, strong, beautiful, cannot roll for the life of him. He just, he rolls so bad. Um, and so every, when he fails, it's like, it's just food for my creativity. Like, oh, yeah, you have this big stick. I got this thing. I'm going to get all these villagers. And we're going to have a thing. And he can talk. He's a paladin, right? So, of course, he can charm the pants off. Well, he doesn't try the pants off of anything, but he does <laughs> charm people very well. Um, and then he makes this big plot and he makes all these plans and then he executes and then it fails. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Because how boring would it be if he did this whole plan thing and it succeeded? Yeah. I mean, just as like, <laughs> Just
2: looking at, at characters in books and movies and we don't want them to succeed all the time. Like when that happens, it takes you out of the story. And like, I, no, I don't believe you. You've got to have those those failures and it, and you just have to ha- handle it. It's- yeah.
1: So you've got your building an encounter. You've got your the best case scenario and your worst case scenario. <laughs> That's how I like to build it. Best case, worst case. And uh, worst case scenario will lead to X, Y, and Z. Best case scenario will lead to A, B, and C. And so when I design it, I design it to allow players to fail. Because when they fail, it gives them another opportunity to succeed. So, um, and here's a secret. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sometimes I program in failure. What? Oh, Yes. Yeah. If you
2: do something that you know, there's no chance. Oh yeah, that it's there's like no, okay. they're not going to okay. win.
1: Yeah, there's no way. They will fail this. And, but they don't know that. I hope they're not listening. <laughs> 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 but they don't know what that is, right? And so, but I've already designed the story, the overarching story, and it's how they interact and relate to the story. But, you know, if they're winning, winning, winning and no failure, I'm going to put in a failure. So that now they have to like, face reality and have to kind of overcome that. It's a weird thing to say out loud, but it's definitely real. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: Yes. You have, they have, this is kind of like, we, you know, our, our interview for, on this, this episode of Dragon Talk is with Jamie Nash, who's a screenwriter and has a number of, of tips on the, you know, comparison of writing a screenplay or writing for TV and writing campaign you know like being a dungeon master all his life has really taught him how to hone those skills and it exactly exactly what you're saying like though you got to have the feeling you got to hit him in the feels and you got to have the low 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 and yeah that bring it back up so
1: that's so funny because my my uh campaigns are all scripted like uh oh, really? like a, yeah because i do i'm um, a comic book artist so i use uh screenplays um, for my comics. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I use that in my games and I time everything out too. So at seven o'clock, this happens. 7.15, this happens. No way. 7.45. The world around the players is alive and you have to make them feel like it's alive. They can go about and make all these choices, but the world around them, if they go left there's still something over to the right and that thing over to the right is going to do something. And eventually that's going to get back to the players. So That was yeah, my critical so
2: failure. Was I always use the example of I, I knew what was to the right and my players went left and I didn't know what was left. And instead of just moving what was right to the left. Yeah, that's all you have to do. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what's there. <laughs> this game's over. It's over. Oh no, you got stumped. Yes. It's, like immediately. And I could never... Regain my composure. Like I could have just been like, "Well, that door is locked.
1: Go to this door." (laughs) Like that's true. The other thing you can do is go up five minute break. Oh yeah. Like I know we just started, but (laughs) we need a break. Yeah. No, seriously. You're the you control the world around you.
2: Yes, and and I have learned. I have gotten a lot of of good tips where I I know (laughs) I know now how I could. If, if only I knew then what I know now, it wouldn't have been such the a The
1: players don't know what you don't know. Right. And that was the biggest epiphany when I first started Dungeon Mastering. I was like, wait a second. They they are literally just waiting for me to show them what the world looks like. I could make up anything, literally anything. I could read directly from this campaign book, or I can just make the entire thing up on the fly. And as long as I'm listening to them and hearing the, like really paying attention to the choices that they're making, I can maneuver around and create a story based off of just what they're wearing and where they are and what, if they go left or right. Yeah. Cause
2: yeah. you're a pro <laughs> only cause I failed a lot. <laughs> See, All right. So embrace Failure embrace as a dungeon it. master and as dungeon masters, please teach your players to embrace their failures as well. Have fun with it. And and that will help them become vulnerable and that will just make the games better and a better experience for everyone.
1: If you can get players to choose to fail a role, let's see, how would I do this? My my players actually do that. They, they love failing to the point of in Avernus, I make them roll, um, a percentile if they want to use magic. I love it. Um, it's, they have to roll between one and 30 and 70 and a hundred. If they want to actually cast something, if they don't, then they, the magic backfires, you know, good berries, now a poison berry. I've had things implode and like polymorph does not go well. If you, if backfire, <laughs> um, yeah, when, Allowing Best them teams. to say, you know what? I have such a fun idea. I don't want to roll for this. I choose to fail. And so, if you can reward your player to choose to fail, now there's a crit fail and then there's regular just, I don't want to succeed on this. But you have to reward them. Like you made that wild decision. You get triple advantage on your next roll. That's,
2: that's oh, wow. Point. Yeah. I oh, nice advantage. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah. It's fun that way. (laughs) Failure is fun with team. So um, this is amazing as usual. And I feel like I could talk to you forever. Uh, And maybe you'll come back because I know that you have lots of wonderful tips and tricks.
1: I would love to. Um,
2: In the meantime, where can people find you uh, and all of the amazing things that you've probably got cooking going on right now?
1: Woo. I got a lot cooking. I know you do. <laughs> um, yeah. So Sateen Phoenix everywhere at Sateen Phoenix, sateenphoenix.com. I'm a story coach at, uh, patreon.com slash Sateen Phoenix. I, my husband and I and his team created Sirens Battle of the Bars 5e campaign and setting. You can get that awesome. at the Bardbook.com, cause Bards. And, um, yeah. And now we're doing events. I travel the world in luxury and you can come with me for okay. Satine's Quest, a luxury travel gaming adventures. We basically take D, we play it on the table we take it out into the world and do gamified excursions we have masquerades it's all inclusive and um it's a seven days on a cruise and then another one is in a mansion wentworth oh. mansion in south carolina like top eight hotel in america yeah i like gaming and luxury and you're all
2: coming with me <laughs> oh my god this is amazing <laughs> oh, i love your brain i do <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you again so much for being here. And I cannot wait to talk to you next time. Thank
0: you. Yay! Oh, I'm so jealous you got to ask Satine all those wonderful DM questions. Do you feel like you know more now?
2: always just being in her presence just makes me feel like I know more about everything. Mostly just about being a really good person because that's also what she is. I love her so much.
0: It's true. Uh, And now I'm going to say that we should learn more about uh, Jamie Nash and all the amazing stuff that he's doing. Let's get him on the horn. Let's do it. Everyone, let's welcome Jamie Nash to Dragon Talk.
1: Yay! Yay, Jamie! Woohoo!
3: It's the biggest ovation I've ever gotten.
2: <laughs> wow. Well, we have a very large studio audience. Yes. I don't know if you were aware of that.
0: Yeah, it's like the Muppets. We all have to vo- do all the voices ourselves <laughs> in order to make it seem like a much bigger audience.
3: Yes. So it sounded great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we're excited to talk to you because you're a long-time uh, D&D player, uh, but you're also a screenwriter, and uh, I've written a book about screenwriting, uh, or TV writing more specifically, and I'm always fascinated by that connection, right? The people who have been playing Dungeons & Dragons for a long time, Dungeon Mastering for a long time, and then using those skills... Uh, for for other creative mediums and uh, the episodic nature of TV just seems to fit right into you know the session by session play of of D and D campaign. So um, I'll I'll start off with just going like, what was your history with with Dungeons and Dragons? How did you how did you start? What was your
3: origin story as a uh, a young kid playing D and D? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I got into it in the heyday of D and D. It was kind of the early '80s. I was I think I was in fourth grade when this person wow. showed up with a character sheet. And uh, the, the funny thing about it is I cleaned out my garage recently and I went through all my old stuff. So I had all my old character sheets and stuff, literally oh. stuff from fourth grade. And I'm older now, so it's it's the 80s. <laughs> um, I, by the way, I sold a lot of it because um, I found that it was worth a lot of money, like even in the horrible condition, like my my old like Ravenloft module and, you oh, know. My, my way. Oh, really no
2: way. My 80s
3: and demigods. I, I didn't have the cool one with... um. With the Elric stuff. Yeah. yeah. Everybody asks. They're always like, do you have that? And I'm like, no. Otherwise, I'd be selling it for five times as much. <laughs> so, I had a ton of stuff. I mean, just in the last month, I sold. So, I kind of went down memory lane. But I remember I had, like, one kid had a character sheet. And he kind of lied his way through a couple games of D&D. Because it was at that, that weird period where it was the... I, I don't know. I'm I'm horrible with, like, the version numbers. But it was the mm. red and the blue book. Uh, the You know, the... Basic and the expert. Right. And then we had a monster manual on the side and we had like some, you know, advanced DD charts and things like that. So we cobbled together a game. And I think the guy kind of made it up as he went along a little bit and filled yeah. to fill in the blanks. And it was um, we just would go over uh is it keep on the borderlands over and over and over again. we do it like a thousand times, like every single day. Um, with different characters
0: or with the same? The no, same with characters?
3: the same characters. Like we just <laughs> keep going outcomes. back. Yeah, we just, you no. Know, it really wasn't the same outcome. We'd be like, let's go fight Medusa again or something. It wasn't even much of a story to it. It was just, we were experimenting with this new magical thing that none of us had any idea, you know, what it was. And it was, honestly, we had no idea what it was. It was like this weird magic that this guy was presenting on my back porch for many mm. years. And... um. And as that went on, you know, we got better at it. We bought more modules. It was mostly module-based. And uh, I gravitated totally toward the DM side. Um, And honestly, and I'm a screenwriter now. It's my full-time gig. I think that was largely the birth of learning how to tell a story. Um, And I, I definitely gravitated toward that thing where I made the stories have kind of beginning middle ends i wasn 't i, I wasn 't much into modules like I did that a little bit, but I quickly graduated from that, and I tried to tell these rich stories with plot twists and all this kind of weird stuff going on and I have to admit a lot of times I would cheat the roles or stuff because we used to we used to roll behind the screen was the way we did it we, we kind of made up some of the rules as we went, um, so nobody really knew, so I could kind of lie and and make the outcomes be what I wanted to just like a real screenwriter does. Just like a real just, screenwriter. Just lies for their I, it, for their it living. Was, it was just lies to make the story work, right? Um so uh that that was my initial my initial thing and I did that for for many years. I mean from 4th grade probably through my college years I did it and um You know, I get into LARP and stuff like that, which kind of scratched an itch. There's a game called Darkon, if you ever hear about it. And that was invented in my neighborhood. And I was like one of the founding members at the time. I was like 13 years old. So the padded weapon thing was a big thing. But even that, I took more toward live action D&D as opposed to that game was more battle-oriented. It was just, Mm. you know, two sides fighting each other. But yeah, I was always on the storytelling side. I always wanted to, you know tell a story. I always wanted to be in charge of that side of it.
2: I always wonder when we hear people say that they gravitate towards being a dungeon master because they want to be the ones telling the stories. And is it, was it that you already had that love of storytelling in you, which made the role of dungeon master appealing? Or was it the loving being a dungeon master that made you want to pursue screenwriting or writing in general?
3: I I think in my case... I already had the storytelling in me. Like I had these stories bottled up and I had no, that, you know, this was pre-internet, pre, pre-anything. So when I used to want to write, I had to use a clunky old typewriter and it was horrible. And I could never, but in D&D, I could sit in my back porch and come up with a story that, that my friends loved. I mean, they'd come back for more and more. They craved more and more. And I could tell those stories that I had no other outlet for, until D&D showed up when I was a kid to kind of perform in front of everybody and yeah. give, get, share my story as opposed to just have it in my head.
2: Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Now, is that any of the the things that you discovered in your garage? Any of these old adventures that you crafted back in the day?
3: It's it's funny. I, I used to create a lot of games on my own. Uh, so that's more what I found. I didn't really find so much like campaigns or anything like that. I, I, now, of course, I found all the old D&D stuff, like our character sheets and stuff like that. Um, and I had a lot of it. I was a big TSR person in general, so we jumped a lot of games as well. We played Top Secret and Gabba World and some of those early mm-hmm. TSR games. Um, but no, it was maybe, I, I don't think I found any modules or anything like that that would really... Because um, some of that was just me. notes right it was yeah. probably just like you know things I think written a, on a scrap thing a lot in of your it, head. a lot of it was in my head like i'd i'd scratch some stuff down like for me it was it was about if i had a particular npc or something i might plot out what their thing was and i might make a map but the rest of it was kind of coming out of my head so um there wasn't but i'm sure there was stuff written down but that wasn't in my in my box of treasures that mm-hmm. that's
0: interesting to me because i think the the instinct to become a screenwriter is different than the director or, or the other filmmaker or, or, or TV director out there, right? Because it sounds like if it was only in your head, then you were just you were interpreting something and making it something. But screenwriting is a very specific, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert here, on like uh, you have to put the document out there so that someone else uh, can, other departments can take what you've written and then turn it into uh, a, a, a piece of sequential art. Right and that's doesn't sound like that you learned that from from d d
3: yeah uh it you know that that's a good that's a very good point. I think that the things that are especially in the DNA that the shared DNA is the screenwriter is the is kind of the first thing like without the screenwriter there's sort of nothing you know it, you need to have something somebody to tell you, hey this is what we're gonna do this is the plan at some point um but then yeah as far as like Writing it down, then to get off, or something like that, and and getting notes. I didn't get any notes as the DM. Like <laughs> um, well, I kind of got notes when people got angry or something at some twist. Trying <laughs> um, to get a Cheeto in the face. Yeah, like, that's, yeah. A right. Note. that's right. That's right. Those were the <laughs> notes I got early on. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the, yeah, it, it had a lot of a lot of similarities. A lot of my my intuitions and instincts, I think, came from those games. Um it really takes talking to people like you to kind of reflect back on the, on that you know and say where did this thing where did this crazy thing come from but i spent a lot of time on that back porch so i,
2: I like right. the the back porch keeps coming up um yeah. Yeah. i greg you said that what you're saying about you you don't see the parallel but i 100% see it with and i'm saying this as someone who's never written a screenplay or an adventure but in my my mind i think they would be very similar and that you're giving just enough information like it comes in from outside and it's windy and now the character mm-hmm. speaks or something like you're like writing an adventure. You're giving the dungeon masters enough information to go out an adventure and, and tell a story in this world that you're creating. Yeah. But yeah. still leaving... A lot, um not I I don't know how much you actually leave to as a screenwriter if you're like, absolutely not, say the line this way, but um yeah, or you're yeah. coming in through the front door, not the back door. But like once the players start playing in it, there is still gonna be a little bit of um things things that change. Oh, well. Just like mm-hmm. how you're saying like you get notes as a screenwriter from, you know, as the actors or oh, the yeah, directors like kind of. I like that yeah.
3: parallel. No, yeah, yeah that's 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 beautiful. I'm, I'm going to use that for now on, by the way. Yes, go for it. Because you're, you're absolutely right. And again, like I said, I'm kind of learning just talking to you, like thinking about my past. So I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but um, you're absolutely right. It's D&D, it's, and I, I never viewed it as a thing where I was in charge. And even though I said I might cheat a role here and there, um, it's a collaborative. It's a collaboration. And screenwriting, what I love about screenwriting, and I write novels too, Um Novels are not a collaboration. Novels are me saying, here's the story. Don't change it. Don't and deal don't with it. think about it. <laughs> when I write when I a screenplay, I'm sending it out to directors, producers. We're all getting together. And if you last a long time in the screenwriting game, and if you want to make a living at it, you have to be collaborative. There's no, <laughs> there's no other choice. Um, you know, in some ways, sometimes I'm a um, kind of short order cook. Less Sometimes I'm a chef, but sometimes it's more like, give me a hamburger. And I got to give him a hamburger. And that's my job is to give the hamburger. Um, and then sometimes I'm deciding what everybody's going to eat for dinner. Um, but yeah, you have to collaborate. But I agree. D&D is the exact same thing. So yeah, I love that. I love that. Do you yeah. think
2: maybe you're, um, like you're good at that part of your job, the collaboration part, like giving someone yeah. a hamburger when you wanted to give them a hot dog because of your experience with D&D?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in all in all humility, I do think that is one of my uh, one of my skills. Is I enjoy that part. I I, I don't get like certain people, especially in creative endeavors, um, get very frustrated when they get a note or when they get other yeah. ideas. They they only they only can see it their way, and they have a hard time adjusting. Um, and while sometimes it can be very difficult, and it can be frustrating depending on the note. Um, that that's the part of the job I love. I, I love working with people. I love the social aspect, and it's also the part I love about D and D. You know, it's it's the social aspect was always the thing. The the getting around the table, right. the um, the being with my friends, the the reason to be there, this shared creation was always always the thing I loved about playing. So, I think I think there's parallels for sure.
0: So, as a as a dungeon master. Uh, like, you know, back then, but but even now, like, do you talk to uh players and try to get out character details that you might think are evocative uh to to tell the story, similar to the way you would, you know, in in writing a screenplay and making sure that you have these characters that have defined characteristics? Because I know a lot of people, especially in the in the older times of playing Dungeons and Dragons, it was just <laughs> like I'm a human fighter, Yes. and that's it. And that's all right. I care about, and so like were you the type of DM that where you were like trying to get out details?
3: yeah, yeah, it's it's um so it's it's interesting, so I you know, just to give you my kind of recent history, I don't play d and d as much anymore, but I have recently, and that's the part I love best and the, mm. the funny thing is f- nowadays when I play, sometimes I do play the character side where I would never do that. I got to a point where I was like, I'm never playing a character, I can only be a dm, I just don't <laughs> like it but I play characters now and I feel like I'm a storyteller as a character where I didn't get that back when I was a kid. I didn't realize that I was telling the story as a character. And now with all my screenwriting background and stuff, I approach it that way. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a hero with flaws Hmm. and I have a strange point of view and I'm going to try to process my emotions through that. I'm going to try to become some flawed thing that is going to act and try to be heroic or villainous or whatever. Um, and I do that now. Um, so what I love is when my DM, and I, I used to do this as a kid, I'll explain that too. But I love when my DM really asked me, you know, what do you think your character's flaw is? You know, why are you that way? Because then they can, and this is something I do in screenwriting. Screenwriting has these character arcs, right? So you have a flawed character and the story is about them changing to a less flawed character. That's usually what a, what a movie is about, a, a book is about. Um, and I love it when my DM asks me those flaws because then, just like as a screenwriter, what I do is I create scenes that attack those flaws. I create things that test those flaws. So I think the best way is for that... I, I think the best way to DM... This is just for me. I mean, I know there's a million ways is to understand what those flaws are. So you can construct scenarios that really put people in pressure cookers on an emotional level as well as an action level and a physical level and a, and a thought and a plot level. So that's my long-winded answer. so
2: smart. <laughs> I'm already thinking, like, you would be such a good guest for how to be a, a DM. So we're probably going to have to have you come back. <laughs> Just telling you that now. Um, how did oh, you yes. do that as
0: a as a dungeon master though? I would love how did you how did you get that that you said you did it so, as a kid as well.
3: So, so as a kid, I didn't get this for a while, and again, we just played Keep on the Borderlands and kept attacking Medusa a <laughs> hundred times. Um, but I played for years, and it matured as as I went, and um, I think it took playing other games to figure it out mm. um, because D and D was such a system that I didn't see the story in it. Like, I didn't, I couldn't divorce the, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't, to me, it was like, play the modules, play the game, it's the modules, you know. But then when I started to play other role-playing games, um, and I, the one I remember that really kind of changed me a little bit was a game called Villains and Vigilantes back in the day. Mm. And the reason Villains, I don't even know who made it or anything, it was a superhero game. Yeah, but I the reason that one. that one changed my mindset a little bit was that I took back to D&D was because you played yourself. So I all my friends, I knew what their flaws and their hang ups and and their their relationships and their problems with their parents. And I DM'd that. I told a story. So I did the Marvel superheroes equivalent of my friends. Nice. But it was in this weird fantasy world. And then once we did that, there was no going back because then when we went back to DD, I had to create a similar complex story. But the only way I could do that was by going into their characters, their backstories, and things like that. So, a lot of it just came down to creating characters together. Um, They would make the choices, and then I would take that and riff on the choices they made. We'd do backstories. And this goes... I'm not sure that i do it exactly the same way. I have some other ways I'd probably do it now. But back then, we did backstories. We... We had a friend that was a, became like a big-time comic book artist and he would draw all our characters. We'd oh, pick cool. the right miniatures. You know, we'd do all these things to try to um, come up with these stories. And then some of it was I would just always bring back old adventures into the next adventure. I was constantly looking. A thing in screenwriting that we do, in, in screenwriting there's this idea that everything's either a setup or a payoff. So I kind of use... The same idea when I would DM. Everything that we did in the past was a setup for something I'd pay off later, and even payoffs can be setups for something that happened later. So if you're constantly echoing what's happened in the past, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cathartic kind of. Uh, I, well to use the word again payoff to it there's a lot but you get something from it you when it when it echoes when you bring it back when that past matters so i think then i, I was constantly looking for those kind of things was that what's an example
0: of a good of a good payoff and and or setup and payoff for for a D character Oh gosh, you're gonna you're gonna give me a, a no because I'm just trying person. to I want to cement yep. that what you're saying yeah, to like, like an example too. because no, I love no. it but I I'm I'm try, I'm having trouble trying to think of how I would weave it into like my current game for example
3: right right so I might I might have to do it like sideways um okay. I might have to do it sideways so there's a there's an exercise that I sometimes do when I'm when I'm writing a screenplay and it's writing a bio. Um, through, let's say, objects or, or something like that. Let's say it's a, you could, you could write a bio um, and say, you know, what's, what's a character's favorite song? Or what's a character's, what's a, what's a small trinket from their past that they have in their hand? You know, what's, what's something they hold? So somebody might, let's say somebody has a, um, a little flute, a golden flute or something. And then you ask that character, you say, well, why do you always carry that golden flute? And they say, well, it was my brother's flute, and my brother brother died. It was a bard and went missing or something on a a pirate ship or something. Um, So then in a screenplay, when I do that bio and I say, okay, flute, my next question is always, how does that pay off in act two? How does that pay off later in the movie? So I just saw something like... um, like uh, Black Widow, I just saw Black Widow, and okay. and they they have little like touchstones that they might have or no. I'm what what was the movie? This this one comes to mind. Um, gosh, the what Mitchells. Is, uh, did you see uh, Mitchells versus the Machines? I'll use that. That's yes, right. I
0: did. But Black Widow, I I, I think I have one. Okay. Uh, uh, because I, I, in the openings and spoilers for for, for Black Widow, yeah, uh, that's why uh, I switched. There, but go for Black. Ah, no worries. <laughs> uh, it's not really a, a really that important detail. But there is in the early part when they're kids, uh, they're upside down, and yes. they say, "You're upside down," uh, yes. or uh, "We're both upside down." And then that is, line is paid off it, in at the end of Act later. Three when they're it's, adults. It's, exactly. And that one hit me in the fields.
3: Exactly. Huh. And th- those kind of things hit you in the fields. I think there's a moment with fireflies in that movie yes, that they the use. And they come too. back and they just echo these things. So if you're writing a bio, the, um, the person can come back and, and play, you know, like like that golden flute or whatever, the magic flute or whatever thing. <laughs> um, maybe maybe there's an NPC with a similar one later and there's a story behind it. Maybe that's how it pays off. Yeah. Maybe your character needs to play that flute and play the song to enchant someone later on there's all kinds of ways that you can take the bio and say what's personal to them and then set up something in there that's you know that the flute is their thing so is there some way that you can come up with a puzzle that if they think of that flute they'll nail it it's hard to because it's because it is interactive and collaborative sometimes those things are not going to work out in your in your story but then sometimes maybe there's a chance to circle around and find another place to pay it off at the same time. But I think if you're aware of setup and payoff, you can constantly be looking for it. But the mm-hmm. only way you're going to know it is if you sit down with your players and their characters and they share those kind of important emotional things, um, their backstories and things like that. So that's, that's where I'm at with setup, setup, payoff. I love it. I love it.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, can we, let's talk about Save the Cat.
3: Okay, yeah. this is a, a your book, yeah.
2: and then a, a a website that is based on the book. I'm imagining. Yep. Um, so tell us a little bit about. Well, I'm curious what Save the Cat references. I have a feeling, but okay, this yeah, is yeah. so. This is your it's a your a best selling book. No, less. it's a, a best selling book. I would book. like to call that out because
3: that's impressive. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Save the Cat is a book. It's it's actually a book that was written 15 years ago. So mine's the newest version of it. I didn't okay. write the one 15 years ago. Mine's a bestseller too. Mine's the new bestseller. <laughs> but that one's been a bestseller for like 15 years. It's been a bestseller forever. And um, Save the Cat, what it references is a moment in a movie where a character kind of earns your empathy by um, by doing something... Nice. So let's say they're a super jerk, you know, they're a thief or something like that, but they take the time to save a cat, right? They take a the time. So mm-hmm. there must be some heart in them. That's, that's the save the cat moment. Okay. And, and the save the cat moment is only one small part of the book. It's just became the title. Yeah. Um, but that's what the save the cat moment is. Um, Would it work also if it's save the tabaxi? Absolutely. Okay, it could good.
0: be
2: even it, more
3: so, I think. Yeah, yeah. You could good. you can save you can save practically anything. That works some, so, sometimes you can kill the cat if you <laughs> want to do the opposite thing. You know, you can you can <laughs> certainly kill the cat if That's you want to. When like, you want a villain, yeah. right? You want to you shoot yeah. a villain. That's See the them biggest kicking passes is, is the, the way to do villainhood. it. Yeah, yeah. And there there's like the example I think one of the examples in the book is like Aladdin. You know, Aladdin is this thief, and it's like, should we root for Aladdin? But I think Aladdin steals a piece of bread early on. But then there's this little, little boy and he gives the bread to the little boy. So he's, he's got a hero. heart of gold. A thief with a heart of gold. And I, 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 just speaking of, um, not to again riff back on character, but I think if you can find, especially if you have a flaw in your character, if you can think of what, what the opposite of that flaw is and say that also exists in your hero... Like, so let's say your person is a thief, or let's say they're selfish. You could say, what's the opposite of selfishness? And you could say selflessness. And then you can express, and then the next question is, how does your hero express selflessness? Because then you have this paradox that your hero is both a thief, but deep down, there's something in them that maybe they're a little different. You can do that with any flaw. So they could be, you know... Sadistic, or something, and you could say, "What's the opposite?" And then you could ask yourself how to express that. So it's one of those things. Again, as I play characters now, this is these are the thoughts I come up when I when I do my character creation. I try to make a paradox for my character. So even if they're the most ruthless jerk, there's some deep down paradoxical element within them that only comes out in certain situations. So anyway, that's a riff on Save the Cat. So. <laughs> Yeah, go for it. John. No,
2: I was going to back to the the book because I noticed yeah. that the subtitle is Writes for TV, the last book on creating binge-worthy content. And I can only imagine that 15 years ago we didn't have streaming services and we no. weren't able to binge content. No,
3: not at <laughs> all. I don't know if all. we had
2: DVRs. Yeah, we must not, have had
3: DVRs. So, so the, the original Save the Cat was a screenwriting book. And it's big things that it goes over, and we can talk a little bit about these. The big thing it has is a, the thing called the 15 beats. That's what most people know it as. Mm-hmm. And there are 15 beats that every good story has. It's like an outline of, of, uh, of things that you want to check off as your story goes to give you, give you a cathartic story with a beginning, middle, end, and all the right plot twists. And um, I, I actually think it could be hugely helpful uh, to Dungeon Master's I think you find it in any good story, whether it be a wrestling match, you know, a WWE wrestling match, or a TV show, or a comic book, but also in a good in a good D and D campaign or just a good D and D session. I think the 15 beats can show up. So that's that's the major part of it is the 15 beats. What
0: can you explain? What is it? I think I know what a beat is, but for listeners, yeah. what 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 are, what are they? 15 different things, or the throughout the course of a, a story, you have to hit 15 beats before it's over.
3: Yeah, yeah, you, you hit the 15 beats, so it's almost like a. Um, Schedule that you're mm. keeping, you know, like this. At this point, this happens. At this point, this happens. At this point, this. Happens. Okay, so it's
0: a, it's a, like an adaptation of like Sid Field's like inciting incident and you got and all those things right. You
3: got it. So, Save the Cat was an evolution, and it's it's really not a revolution, but it's an evolution of Sid Field' hero's journey. If you've heard of hero's journey mm-hmm. and some of these other things, it, it really lines up well with the hero's journey. So, you know, the the fifteen beats. It's like it starts with an opening image. And the opening image kind of sets the tone of the before world. Um, there's a closing image at the end that bookends it. Um, you get a setup of your heroes in the ordinary world. Um, you get a catalyst, which is the event that kicks off the story. Something happens to your hero that kicks off the story. In a d and campaign, that could be the mission, or it could be an attack on the village or something like that. Um, somebody gets kidnapped. Um Then you have this debate, which the debate is preparing for the bigger quest or the journey. And that usually happens next. In Hero's Journey, that's the denial of the call. Um, Then then you get a spot which is called the break into two, which is when your heroes decide to take on the mission and they go and do the thing. You know, whatever the mission is, they go to do it. Um, Then you get fun and games, which is the promise of the premise. It's the reason you're there. So, You're exploring the Tomb of Horrors or whatever. You know, everything else is set up and then you're inside the quest. You're doing the thing. Um, And then the other ones... So I think most of those happen in in most D&D sessions. You know, you have a catalyst where somebody shows up, you prepare, and then you go on the thing. You're in the dungeon quest. I think some of the ones that are more helpful without going through all of them is um, I think the midpoint. So the midpoint in a movie... Right in the middle of a movie, there's usually some plot twist. Uh, it's usually like a false victory. It, it could be a false defeat. And it either makes things more personal, It or a lot of times it's the bad guy notices the good guys. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I see. I got to stop this, you know? So, so the villain notices. Sometimes it sets off a ticking clock. Like, oh, now we only have one hour to pull this off, you know, because... They're on to us or it's going to blow up or something like that. Um, So I think considering, you know, I think going over the beats for a DM is really helpful. And you can find these things free on the Save the Cat website. You can find the beats. Um, But I think especially looking at some of them like the midpoint and keeping them in mind. So So your quests aren't just linear. You know what I mean? So you're not just hack up this thing, hack up this thing, hack up this thing but then the midpoint changes thing that raises the stakes and makes makes things more tense. So I think a midpoint's really key. Maybe something that not all DMs do but some do.
2: So I I the binging shows on you know Netflix or whatever like it, it's very it's very similar I think to a campaign. Yes. That so it, you take an episode and that's kind of like your game session. So mm-hmm would you how many of those beats are you expected to hit not expect i mean i know you're you you did not write this for dungeon masters but i honestly think maybe sure. you could yeah, uh, yeah. that could be like a you know a little side project
3: yeah, but absolutely. um
2: what so how many beats would you into like should a dungeon master hit in a session or when you're talking about these beats is are you is it meant to be spread across the entire campaign
3: it, it, and, the, and the good answer to that is it depends. Um, and de- television's really weird. So in a movie, it's really easy. The movie, all 15 beats get hit, done, yeah. because it's an end-to-end story. So the weird thing about television, and this applies to D&D too, I, I think 100%, the two are almost analogous in this regard. Um, TV shows aren't necessarily stories. TV shows are story engines, right? So you might have just because it's an easy one to pick on. Like Law & Order, that's not a story. It's a story engine. So every week, there's a story. So every week, Law & Order hits those beats. But in a TV show, some weeks, it hits all the beats. And some shows, they're spread across the whole thing. So it's it's really tricky. If you're telling one story, they're really spread across the whole thing. But what you find in most television shows, and and to be honest, my book is mostly about writing pilots because pilots mm. are the thing that um, screenwriters, new screenwriters, need to write. Like no new screenwriter sits down and writes twenty episodes or twenty two. They just write a pilot, a and so. so so my book's very much contained to that. Um, and and that's why TV is such as such a wide landscape, is that they're free to do anything. They could do five episodes that tells one story and the next five tells another if they wanted to. They could tell 10 episodes and one episode could be contained. It could be a complete, did you watch like Mythic Quest? Did did anybody watch Mythic Quest on Apple? It's a good Mm -hmm. show. Um, But they did like a a self-contained bottle episode all of a sudden. They just did one of those, they drop in the middle of the season and then the rest of the season kind of has a story that it tells end to end but they can drop you know, episodes in any, in any season. Breaking Bad or something like that, it usually tells one story across one season. It feels like a campaign, and then yeah. you might get another campaign, and then another campaign.
0: But like uh, those, they also... I was thinking about that because that's almost like the way people describe arcs in, yes. in a campaign, right? Where you'll have a beginning and middle end of an arc, and sometimes the beginning of arc two is actually starting midway through arc one. Right? Like some yes, of those inciting yes. incidents might be starting, you know. And I know, like, uh, True Blood, I think, is a good example of that, where in some of their seasons, you know, episodes nine and 10, the last two episodes of the season, were closing out one, one story, but they were doing the, the work to try to set up the next story. Uh, at the end, so that you weren't necessarily ending and being like, "Well, I have no idea what's going to happen next." Where you're like, "No, no, you actually have three or four of those beats ready to go, and and you know what to expect when you when you show up." So the payoff absolutely of the right. premise might end up being that first uh, that first episode of uh, season four, for example.
3: You're, you're absolutely right. So so what does that mean in that big mess? And this is it's kind of what I write about in the television thing. I see TV's really weird in that way. (laughs) And and, and TV writers' rooms, they use every trick they can to keep people entertained. So everybody does it a little different. What I would suggest for Dungeon Masters is go check out these 15 beats. And sometimes you might want a session to hit all 15 beats. It it wouldn't hurt for a session to hit all 15 beats. You can have stories within your bigger story. You can tell a 10-episode story but have, you know, a whole episode tell um, 15 beats. It could be a complete story if you just looked at it and it kind of, end that part, but then it has it to be continued and the engine, the bigger picture continues week to week. Or if you really want to, you could stretch it out for the longer period of time. I, here, here's the one part I find though. I find, especially if you're doing sessions, um, it's, it really depends on your players and your style. But I find that if you can find stories within the bigger story, like it's almost like this weird onion kind of thing, or it's DNA actually, where if you look really close, you'll find the 15 beats. If you look really far away, you'll find the 15 beats, you know? And it just depends on how you slice it. But I think if you're aware of those a there's 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 beets. There's, beets the there's there's beets inside the onions. There's beets inside the onions. Exactly. <laughs> it's an heirloom onion. And how you slice beets. them it changes. <laughs> this is some weird vegetarian restaurant. That I'm that's I'm that's here about.
2: for it. I like yeah. it. <laughs> um, I had beets for lunch.
3: Yeah. So I think if sense. I think if you know the the 15 beets, they can help you structure, but they can also help you improvise. Like when you get somewhere like what types of things are supposed to happen here? Like what, you know, what kinds of things uh, should actually, you know, happen? Should we raise the stakes here? Um, there's another beat later called the all is lost moment, where usually that's where somebody dies, or the mission goes to hell before, uh, then you break into three, and um, you you win the day. That's when you Kind of had the finale. And all movies have this. You see this in movies. Like that all is lost as often like somebody gets captured or somebody gets killed or the mission looks lost. Um, so I think an awareness of where you think that is will just help you deliver enough of uh the gear shifts. And that's really what it is, right? It's like turn up the action, turn down the action, uh, turn up the tension, turn down the tension. That's and I really think- smart. I think that's what the fifteen will help you with. I
0: like that because it does have. You, you're right. You, sometimes you just want a session. If you have a longer session, you might be able to get all fifteen of those into a you know four or five hour session. But if you have, I, I usually play in so, shorter sessions of like two hours, mm-hmm. and so I'm doing the longer fifteen beats type thing. But I do sometimes enjoy the sessions where we have that beginning, middle, and end feel and uh, something happening. And I think the, you're right. A lot of DMs could could look at these.
3: The the other thing I'd say the book has. Um, there's this thing called the Save the Cat genres. And the Save the Cat genres are more like story patterns. Uh, they're, they're kind of like common stories that have been told. There's 10 of them. And just I'll just super quick to give you an example. Uh, there's Golden Fleece, which I think most dungeon crawls are. The Golden Fleece is a road trip story. It's a quest. It's trying to grab a treasure. It's a heist movie. It's something like that. That's your Golden Fleece story. And I think, you know... I think if you mix up the types of stories you tell, so for example, there's the next one is dude with a problem or, or dudeette with a problem and dude with a problem or dudeette with a problem is kind of your, um, your diehards, you know, mm. it's, it's something, some sudden event happens and sweeps your poor heroes into some mm. horrible thing, you know? And I think if you, there's the other ones that they have are like monster in the house, which is, it's the horror movies. You're trapped in a house. There's monsters trying to get you. Usually it's brought about by some sin that the heroes committed or something yeah. like that. Uh, so that could be another one. There's Why Done which are the mysteries. There's And then there's some other ones that might not apply. Like, it's funny. I was looking at them. And Out of the Bottle is one. And that's like Bruce Almighty or Freaky Friday or something like that, where, where it's kind of this lesson. I was thinking, it doesn't really apply to D&D. But I did this weird campaign, or not campaign, but I did this weird episode with my players when I was a kid where I did a Freaky Friday where I made them all switch character sheets but <laughs> play their characters. I had this thing where they all switch bodies, oh. and they had to go on a quest to find, like, the thing that would fix them. But they were, so it was kind of Jumanji before its time, I guess. Yeah. And I was thinking, so I was thinking, just looking at these genres, if you want to shake up your game a little bit, maybe try to apply a weird genre like the, the out of the bottle or, I don't know, institutionalized is another one. It's kind of the one floor over the cuckoo's nest genre where a group of people are trying to get you to conform or something. Um, just looking at these different types of stories might be able to, you know, shake up your own game. Um, and anyway, they're all available on this on SaveTheCat.com. You can check them out. It's
0: amazingly evocative about what you're just talking about. Is I I'm thinking about my campaign that I'm gonna be running later on tonight, uh that uh, Shelly's husband Bart is actually in. Uh, and I literally had like four different ideas for, for next sessions uh on things that I can do just from what you're talking about. I'm like, oh, they could do that, and oh yeah, and I can uh, connect all nice. that. And I would never even think about that until you start applying these like external Ways of thinking about story to to what's happening in this campaign—it's so fascinating.
3: Yeah, yeah, they're a great brainstorm tool. I mean, that's how I use them to write screenplays. Um, sometimes I'll have a story world, you know, and I'll, I'll be like, "I want to write a, a thing about—I um, don't know, ninjas or something." I don't know why I picked ninjas. Um, I'm in the Maybe I'm an you '80s want kid. To. I picked the ninjas. What about <laughs> turtles? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's Ninja Turtles, <laughs> and and then I can go through it and I could say, you know, what's a golden fleece with ninjas? That's pretty obvious. But what's an out of the bottle with ninjas? <laughs> Ninja Turtles. Ninjas. See, I yeah. yeah. see.
2: <laughs> exactly.
3: Very loud. Uh,
0: so I see that a lot of your, you know, uh, TV credits are horror themed, as well as uh, behind you. You've got The Exorcist and yeah. uh, uh, some other things
3: behind you. So uh, is horror a big part of your milieu? It is. It is. I'm definitely a horror guy. I, I gr- again, I grew up in the '80s, so it was Freddy and Jason and all the cool stuff. Michael Myers is my favorite. Um, the Exorcist is my is my most uh, the movie that scared me the most. I think Hellraiser. I'm a huge. Clive Barker guy, and I, I, actually love. It's funny. All the fantasy stuff I do now, I totally mix horror tropes. I, mm-hmm. I was also a big Conan the Barbarian. Um, sword and the sorcerer was a big movie for me as a kid these kind of weird movies that did use a lot of gore and violence and they they had a lot of um tastes of horror i even think like peter jackson was like Mm. one of my favorites and he went on to do lord of the rings and he used a lot of horror tropes in his fantasy uh you know in that in those movies they have a lot of touches that he brought from his horror world into those into those things but yeah i'm a horror guy for sure
0: have you, uh, well, you mentioned having the Ravenloft uh, uh, original um, uh, module. Have you been getting into any of the Curse of Strahd or, or uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft that we recently put out about, about that type of horror play around the table?
3: I've, I've heard a lot about Curse of Strahd and I'm really interested, but have not played it. I've, I've heard, that one keeps coming up with my friends and stuff when they bring it up. They're like, you have to, you have to try this out. So I, maybe one day. But I'd, I I'd love to, because I, I love that. You know, again, back when I was a kid, it, we didn't mix the stuff too much. Like Ravenloft was very mind blowing. Like, oh, you can do this. You can have like a Dracula story in D and D. Now that's what I want to do. You know, that's all I want to do is I want to do that kind of stuff. So I love that it's evolved to that, and and so many creative minds have brought that kind of stuff into it. But I haven't tried it yet. So I'd love to, though. I
0: want to hear. I want to hear I how you would too. do it. I'll be, I'll be your player <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if awesome. you want to DM that. Very cool. Very cool.
2: So have you ever, when you're creating characters for your screenplays or your novels, mm-hmm. have you ever thought about statting them out onto a <laughs> D&D character sheet? And I'm asking this because I think, Greg, somebody we talked to before had done this or we had talked about them doing it. And I kind of, I always think of that idea when I'm thinking about fiction writing. It's, it's creating it, a character that way.
3: You know what? You know what's funny? So I teach screenwriting too. And um, I try to come up with creative ways to do it. And one of the ways I came up with recently is I have them write their their uh, social media profile. Mm. And, and secretly, it was a character sheet. It was 100% a character sheet. It was, <laughs> it was I, mean, I was looking at it. I had their picture in the corner. You know, I had like their tributes and skills. I, I get more emo like I get more emotional and deeper like I don't worry as much about the physical attributes when I write screenplays like I don't I don't care about that as much so a lot of times I do need to like say and and I suggest people do this with their characters I like create rules for your characters like like what is your what is your character's rule like when they go into a situation do they have a rule like I will never trust anyone or I will always uh, you know I will always um, attack first and ask questions later or something like that and make like rules. So my character sheets almost are sort of those kind of things that help me when I get into scenes. Because then then when I get to a scene, I'm like, okay, well what would this character do? Oh, let me check their their list of rules, their five rules, their personal secret rules that they keep that no one else knows.
0: But And those can get mapped to like, oh, they have a 17 intelligence. So they're going to be trying to be analytical absolutely. and tactical about what they're, they're trying to do. But you're just thinking about it more in a, a narrative statement rather than a, a numerical
3: thing. Uh, absolutely. Because like the games I played recently, like I roll the attributes and then I come up with these rules based on the attributes. So it's just chicken and egg, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why if you had nothing else... I could see rolling up a character and just brainstorming, well, what is this person I'm staring at? You know, I could, I could totally see it working. It just depends on what you need, you know, where you're coming from. Like, if you're coming from nothing, I think that's a great way to approach it. That's what, uh,
0: we have a segment on, on this uh, podcast called Random Character Generator, where we randomize a character at level three and just see all the attributes and all the backgrounds and all the, the choices that get made by the, the AI and we try to come up with a story. What? Why do they have these things? Why do they know uh, Abyssal when they're a half-elf ranger?
3: <laughs> right, right, right. And, I, and all those little details. It's super no, fun. I, I think that's great. I, I come from the other weird part of me. The, uh, I, I did improv and stuff back mm. in the day too. And that's what I feel that is. You know, I feel that's part of that gene as well. It's like, Roll up a bunch of stats. Okay, let me look at this. I know this character. Here they are. They have this intelligence, and this is why, and this is how it shows itself. And they have this dexterity, which means in this situation they're this way. So, um, yeah, no, I, I that's to me that's one of the great funds of character generation is it's not totally just me implying something. Again, I'm being collaborative, but this time I'm being collaborative with chaos, <laughs> with with dice, with with randomness, and I'm I'm you know. Chaos and me are creating a character together. And I love that. That's so much fun.
2: Yeah. One of my favorite parts, I think, well, actually, it is my favorite part of creating a character, other than naming them, is the ideals, <laughs> the the traits, the bonds, the flaws. Um, and sometimes I just will use the table and just, you tell me what my flaw is. Yeah. And then I can create my backstory around it. That's I,
3: great. Yeah.
2: I Yeah, it's just, I just think that's, that's just a, a fun way to... Develop this character that you're playing, like Greg DMs at the end of every one of these episodes. He DMs; he's the dungeon master, and I'm the character. And I was just looking at that character sheet, and I'm like, I don't even think Greg knows some of these things about me. <laughs> but I think knowing like what my flaw is, it would Im- mm. it would um, make sense, Greg, why I do, why Drunky does some of the things that she does.
0: What what is your what is your flaw?
2: I'm quick what? to assume that someone is trying to cheat me.
3: Oh. Wow, that's
0: great. And
2: she's very impetuous with that her explains actions. a lot of <laughs>
0: your reactions about every single character trying to be like, I'm rolling an insight on them right away. Also, I've pulled the, the rug out from under you a few times. So I know your style. The distrust is earned.
3: <laughs> no, that's yeah. That's great. I mean, that's what screenwriting is too, is you know those flaws and then you create scenarios around those flaws and then you let the character tell you what's gonna happen through those scenes. So it's 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 so similar. The two are I so think similar. A,
0: if you mm-hmm. just take away the the word screenwriter from that statement, you're talking about Dungeon Masters
3: too. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's why. That's why it taught me so much as the as the kid on the back porch. That's awesome. I feel and like now, the back
2: porch needs to show up in a movie or something. I
3: know, right. I want I I to see back back that back porch. Right. I, I can visualize a
2: back porch in my mind. I don't know it, if
3: it's. It was right. legendary. I, I went to my friend's, um, one of my players' fiftieth uh, birthday this this year. We're getting old, and. Um, <laughs> And I went there, and all his new uh, D&D buddies were there. And that when I walked in, they were like, this is the guy, the back porch. And they knew oh all my our stories. God. And it was really cool. And they and they awesome. were like, oh, you were the one that did the thing. And he had told them the old stories. He was the DM now, I, which I can only imagine. I'll have to play with him one day. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I walked in, and, uh, and all these new D&D players, because they were all much younger than him too, but we... That was the table I sat at at the party and talked to the whole time because they, oh, the, they were the most fascinating. Yeah.
0: They knew that all is, about the
3: back porch. That is awesome.
0: I know. Now I want to know. I want to screenplay around those, uh, that back porch and what happened
3: there. It was, it was probably Stranger Things. Or, yeah. <laughs>
2: that's, <laughs> that's, I kind of picture that, but not in, in the back yeah. porch.
3: Or E.T. E.T. Yeah. yeah. Portable home. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So if, oh, all right. So the binge-worthy content is if you had to leave Dungeon Masters with I don't know, your number one tip. for. We want, as, as dungeon masters, for our players to binge the content. We want them to look forward to coming back to that next session. We want them to be excited about the story that we're telling. And I'm saying we like I'm a dungeon master. <laughs> in <laughs> this are. conversation, you I are. am. You will be. Um, so what, what is, what, what's the number one thing that a dungeon master should do in every session? To make those players look forward to coming back,
3: yeah, and it, it's the same thing in screenwriting it's make them feel, it's make them feel so it's an emotional thing. It's part, I always say it's uh punch them in the in the feels throat <laughs> that's what you want to do. <laughs> so, um, you want to hit them really hard in the feels throat and let them uh let them feel something. I, I think there's an advantage in Dungeons and Dragons to hitting them in the feels, um, movies. Movies, you're always going to be a surrogate, this kind of, but you can, the characters really embody their characters and there's ownership and there's history and they have to live with those characters going forward too. Whereas a movie, you just turn it off and you watch the next movie. You know, I'm over Black Widow already, you know. It's, <laughs> I'm not going to cry about Black Widow tomorrow. But yeah, it's make them feel. I mean, it's, and I'm sure that's on page one of any Dungeon Master kind of how-to thing is... Figure out a way to make them feel. I I think there's a big advantage that DMs have with that. Mm-hmm.
2: And you gave us some good ideas on that, like taking the the item that they or or something that they're attached to, and and finding ways to bring that back. And
3: yeah, with, with the yeah. setup
2: and the payoff and all that. So
3: I I think another way you can do it too. Like I always tell my screenwriting students, and, and this goes back to the flaw thing. If you can figure out what the hero's flaw is and what their backstory is. I always say as a writer you need to be an angry god, right? You're you're the angry god. I think it, as a DM, you're a benevolent god, you're not like punishing them, you're trying to teach them a lesson or send them through the grinder or or humble them. But you got to be, you know, if you know their flaws and you know what makes them tick and you know the buttons to push, um I think that's a big help as a DM.
2: Yeah. And you have to be angry as the writer because you, you want to set them up to, in circumstances where they're going to come up against things that yeah. are going to put
3: the in, flaws in. And- in screenwriting, you have to be a little mean. I don't know. In, <laughs> I, I think in DM, DMing by its nature, you're a little mean. Um, and sometimes people can be too mean. Like yeah. But as a screenwriter, because they're characters, you have to be mean to them. Some, some writers aren't mean enough to their characters. But... Um, Nobody ever came out of a movie and kind of said, "Like, uh, I think and Sorkin said this." Uh, those obstacles were too hard; they were too <laughs> hard, you know. Uh, 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 so, D and D, the obstacles could be too hard. It's it's a game, so uh, I'm not sure that I quite give it the same tinge. But I do think, you know, make it challenging, make them feel it, make them scared, make them sweat. You know. Tension, do all tension those is what, yeah, tension is actually the key to binge-worthy and page-flipping. It's all about tension. It's always, that's like, uh, as a screenwriter, you're always manipulating tension. And I'm sure in, in in DMing, it's the same thing, manipulating the tension.
0: I love it. I love I it. That it is so true. Easy. And I think uh, you've given me a lot to think about as a Dungeon Master, and I think you're going to give our listeners tons to use and reanalyze some of their uh, you know tried and true methods and and try to evoke some of those feels out there. Mm-hmm. I love it. Thank you so much, uh, Jamie Nash. How can so. people get in touch with you or find out more about your book and your career? Uh, what's the best way?
3: Yeah, uh, so Twitter's the best way. I'm all over Twitter. So I'm at Jamie underscore Nash and I'm J-A-M-I-E. You'll find me. Um, that's the easiest way to find me. And go to savethecat.com if you want a lot of free information. You can buy the books too. I hope you do. And my book is uh, Save the Cat Rights for TV is, is the book I wrote.
2: Yeah. And yeah, it sounds like a lot of great resources and, um, and ways that people can use the content in that book in their D&D games.
0: Absolutely. do it right now. Yeah.
2: And now the yard people are outside and they're weed whacking <laughs> right outside my window.
0: And that's the perfect food to end any D&D session. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks, Jamie. Tension. I'm leaving you with tension. <gasps>
0: no. <laughs> will the weeds get whacked?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, they will. What a fascinating conversation with Jamie. I feel like I want to go uh, to the Save the Cat website and just get all those beats and write them down and then start mapping them to my D&D sessions going forward.
2: I feel like I want to go to his back porch... In Maryland and play some D&D like it's 1984.
0: Just like it's 1984. That
2: was super cool. I love all of the similarities between screenwriting, writing for TV,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and writing for D&D. Yeah,
0: there's synergies as they say. Yeah. Great stuff. Uh, just like the synergies between Dungeons and & Dragons and G4 during D&D live it, uh, over this past weekend, uh, a great celebration of everything Dungeons & Dragons. The games uh, were all great, and I'd love for you to go check them out on the d and YouTube. There's tons of VODs on there. How fantastic was uh, Kate Wells playing with Jack Black and oh Tiffany Haddish God. and Ken God. Smith and all those, that whole crew. Lauren Lapkus, I love them. Reggie Watts?
2: That was an amazing game. Absolutely amazing. I loved Super it.
0: Super fun. Uh, and it got uh, your uh, father into playing. If I if it, I remember, he
2: he would like to clarify because now he's worried because he I didn't I forgot he follows me on Instagram, but he is like, I don't <laughs> I didn't say I wanted to play. Do not like get me started in something. I just said I love <laughs> how this game is played, and like just watching Kate DM for like ten seconds, he was like, I love it. Oh my god, it's amazing. She's fantastic. I'm like. Dude, yeah. you know I wrote two books about this game, right? <laughs> Clearly, Clearly, you never read them?
0: Clearly, he read them cover to cover.
2: You know, and then he, he did say, like, I read them. I mean, I skimmed them looking for my name. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which he he's not it? really he-
2: in there much, so
1: there
0: you go. <laughs> Sorry, not sorry.
2: But yeah, I bet if Kate said that she would DM for him, I bet he would be like, okay, I'm open. Let's do yeah, it. All right,
0: I dig that. I dig that. B. Dave Walters did a fantastic job uh, Dungeon Mastering for the AP Bio uh, oh, cast. Oh, so fun. Uh, very cool. Patton Oswald was robot Patton Oswald in a, uh, a, a computer monitor, which was hilarious.
2: I could not stop laughing at that. But also amazed that like, it actually looked pretty good.
0: Yeah, it actually did. It, yeah. was, uh, it was very cool. Um, and all the jokes from from Becca Scott and Mika Burton, uh, written by Amy Vorpal, uh great stuff. And then the producers uh, there, Lucas Eubanks, did a fantastic job in putting that all together. Uh, you might have um, seen his work on Hyper RPG in the past, as well as uh, at, at Critical Role at you & Sundry, doing a lot of the early streaming of Dungeons & Dragons stuff. Uh, and he brought that all to fruition throughout the whole entire thing. So kudos to everybody for putting that show together.
2: The purple worm. Kill, 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 kill. That was awesome. So, so funny. So fun. So fun.
0: I love that setup of, uh, you know, having inexperienced but uh, very uh, braggarty players uh, up against something big and huge uh, and getting smoten. So yeah. funny.
2: It was. It was really good. I'm excited to see... More of that, for sure. Me
0: too. Uh, Not to mention Amy Vorpal's table with the glubby bonks and guzzle shucks, uh, which she literally just told me that she just named it that because she wanted people to say those words over and over again.
2: That's
0: nice. And I respected that as a a comedy aficionado and a dungeon master. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't really matter what you call a table, but if you got uh, people like me saying that over and over again.
2: Yeah, I I think about that sometimes when I name a character too.
0: Yeah. My party's
2: going to have to call me this, and the dungeon master's going to have to say it.
0: I mean, I think Drunky Two Shoes -shoes. was born from that, also from a barbecue place, but
2: yeah, also from like a legit location. (laughs) (laughs) Does
0: anyone there know that (laughs) that, 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 this is happening? No. All right. Well, that's good. I mean, I can only assume no, because I'm I'm sure they would have.
2: They would have contacted us for sponsorship, I'm sure. Right?
0: I want to get some free barbecue.
2: <laughs> I hear it's I, good. I hear it's really good.
0: I'm sure I'm sure they have some vegetarian barbecue. Oh, like m- the side
2: do. dishes. I'm sure they have some good slaw, some cornbread, mm-hmm. mm. asparagus. Mm. Mm. mm, yes. Mm.
0: Uh so if you want to find out about all of the fun things that we talked about during D&D Live, the best place to go is DungeonsandDragons.com. We've got product pages for all of the books that are coming out uh at the latter half of 2021 here including the wild beyond the witch Life, the fey wild adventure that uh two of the D live games were set in and a fun funky fey carnival as the inciting incident there great stuff from chris perkins then we have uh fizz band's treasury of dragons which we talked about in the intro and strixhaven a curriculum of chaos Great stuff all coming with you with uh, standard covers and alternate covers that you can only get through game stores. So find out all about that at DungeonsandDragons.com and maybe make a pre-order if you're interested in any of those wonderful source books that you can use in your games.
2: And don't forget the dice set.
0: I forgot already.
2: Because it is not just a dice set. It is that as well. But there is so many goodies chocolate full inside yeah. that little dice set, including two beautiful felt line dice trays. Uh, including some beautiful character illustrations, a map of the carnival, and also rules on how to play some of those really fun carnival games. And how fun is that going to be to drop into your uh, D&D games? I I am very excited to go to this carnival. I am going to the carnival.
0: Well, you have a ticket, a golden ticket. Do Um, I, though? You do. Do I? You do. Not everyone else, but just you do. And I love the dice themselves—the like orange sparkly dice uh, with the the blue lettering in there. Very very cool. It reminds me of summer afternoons with Orange Crush, or something like that. Oh
2: yeah, Orange Crush on
0: the back porch playing TNT with Jamie Nash. There you go.
2: We're back. We're back in 1984. Back in Jamie is such a good storyteller. He just keeps sending us back. I know,
0: right? I, I'm transported back. I literally have a picture in my head about that back, even though he didn't describe it in any way. I just like the back porch, and I, back porch is in my head. I know. I wonder if ours you, match up.
2: I that's what I was just wondering.
0: Yeah, well, we'll have to we'll have to dissect that. But first, you can follow me at Greg Tito and Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. What about you?
2: You can follow me at Shelly Moo on. Twitter and Instagram, and two old moms also on Instagram as well. Because I am yeah. one of those two. Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't know what's happening.
0: Professional, professional podcaster right I here. I literally don't
2: know what just happened. The I think I accidentally moved episode, my
0: mouth. Um Is when we started watching YouTube videos and then just started uh, <laughs> uh, seeing if anybody noticed.
2: So I'm going to watch The Bachelorette while we record this. Is that okay?
0: <laughs> Totes. No problem. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. I'll I'll handle I'll carry it from here, Uh, and that brings us to Drunky Two Shoes and what is happening. Get
2: my character sheet
0: with her. uh, You are in the city of Waterdeep. Uh, You have been uh, following your brother Daryl Two Shoes.
2: Following, he has joined
0: the Harpers. Uh, It was all part of a uh, task for him to acquire an amulet that you now currently wear, Drunky. Uh, in the shape of a with a pendant in the shape of an owl with two amethysts for eyes. The magic power of this amulet allows you to determine who is a doppelganger and who is not, no matter what form they are taking. You've been attacked by quite a few doppelgangers since you've been in town, uh, yeah. and have been asked to go to uh, Castle Waterdeep to meet with the Open Lord of the city, Laryl Silverhand. She has some information that. Uh, her entire government may be under uh, attack, uh, attempting to be infiltrated by doppelgangers. You had gone through uh, the security of the captain and brought to a private audience chamber below Castle Waterdeep, and inside there is lots of food, uh, lots of charcuterie uh, that we were all nibbling on as... Laryl Silverhand enters, and she is extremely regal. Uh, her her entire um, ensemble is put together extremely well. Blues and uh, whites and silvers uh, in her long robes. Uh, she's got beautiful high cheekbones, blonde hair, uh, kind of swept out in an amazing updo, uh, and uh, around it is a uh, um, uh, a circlet. Uh, that is not usually something that she wears, but she's wearing something that kind of denotes her her station uh, here. And uh, she comes into the room, and she doesn't even look like she's she's walking. She just kind of uh, glides into the room. Uh, and uh, she sees you, uh, Drunky. Um, wh- what are you, are you doing? Are you? Eating. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got a face full of cheese and uh, prosciutto. Mm,
2: these tender victuals. Yum, 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 yum.
0: Uh, And drunky, I mean, and then Daryl's just there, you know, kind of sipping on a mug of wine, uh, and he kind of, kind of, as he sees Laryl enter, uh, tries to like bring himself up and get him, you know, he's dusting off any of the crumbs that are on his his chest fur, uh, and says, "Yes, uh, uh, yes, Lord, uh, we are here. Uh, What is your bidding?" Uh, And Laryl says, uh, "Thank you for uh, acquiring." this amulet, but I did not know we would be acquiring a companion as well.
2: Still eating. And I said, this is some fancy feast you got here, Miss Silverhands. <laughs> 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 a little kitty humor. I'm a little drunk.
0: Straight face, she's not laughing, uh, and says, yes, uh, uh, I am very Excited that you are enjoying my board uh, here, but what that is not very uh, important in the grand scheme of things, is it?
2: No, I guess. It, I guess it's not. <laughs> uh, I'm Daryl's sister. Drunky, I extend a paw, uh,
0: and she, um, she 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 takes it uh, and is not quite sure uh, why not aware of the protocols of your people, but I. Thank you for assisting in this endeavor.
2: Not my choice. I see. Just really want to get my brother and get, bring him on home.
0: Well, sometimes the, the duties uh, that we choose are not those that we would want.
2: Yes. But uh, it
0: is what is necessary.
2: Miss Miss Silverhands, <laughs> can we can we get on with the business here? Of course.
0: Uh, is your business not eating?
2: Oh, I mean, I can I can listen and eat at the same time.
0: I will. Uh, I will cut to the chase, as they say in Ooh, I love the a game lower words. We have heard intelligence uh, from other sects of the Harpers that doppelgangers have been attempting to infiltrate my government, uh, the entire seat of power here in Waterdeep, for some time. Uh, We are not certain that all are loyal to Waterdeep. We would like you to go to the garrulous grocer in the South Ward. There's a family of halflings there. Famously, one of these halflings was a secret lord of Waterdeep a century ago. Uh, but he was overtaken by a uh, a doppelganger at some point in his history. Adventurers thwarted that plot, but now I have information that a new organization of doppelgangers uh, is using their old contacts, old friends, within uh, the halfling community in the South Ward Uh, as a base of operations. If you were able to go there, prove that there are doppelgangers present, and eliminate them, it would perhaps thwart their plans enough uh, that they would abandon them.
2: So you want me to go there, my brother, my friend Samson here, and discover if there are doppelgangers, and then kill them?
0: You can eliminate them however you choose. I just don't want them within the borders of Waterdeep.
2: Do you have any other resources we can use, Miss Silverhands?
0: I think it is up to you to recruit resources uh, that may be necessary. I do not think the three of you would be able to do this on your own, but I cannot ask the Guard uh, or any official to help, although there are contacts within the Magister's Guild uh, that may be able to help.
2: I look at Daryl like, do you know what the hell she's talking about? Are we
0: doing uh, this? Yeah, of course, I, 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 know, I know that place. Uh, but everyone knows of the watchful order of magists and protectors here in Waterdeep.
2: Um, Maybe one we... of them
0: would be able to to, to help.
2: Well, and Claryl gonna- says,
0: yes, that is correct. Uh, if you would like to have more firepower, as it is called, uh, perhaps you can recruit one of them.
2: I, I mean, I think that makes sense. If you do
0: this, uh, you will have the esteem of Waterdeep, uh, and I will grant you one favor from myself.
2: Okay, are we getting any money?
0: If that is what you wish uh, for your favor as a reward, mm. I shall grant it.
2: Like but any no, amount? No,
0: I also have uh, other rewards at my disposal.
2: Okay. All right. I mean, I guess this I got to do this to get my brother to come home. So <sighs> we're in. Let's go.
0: Very well. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Uh, what was your name?
2: Drunky. And I lick my paw again and, and extend it out to her.
0: Of course. It was nice to meet you. Yeah. Drunky.
2: Yeah, and uh,
0: she kind of turns and glides out of the door.
2: Hell, she was something.
0: <laughs> Did you have so to lick fine. your paw before you tried to shake her hand I wanted to again? clean
2: myself. She looked like she was like not wanting to shake my paw because I was covered in gouda.
0: Well, that's probably true. She probably didn't. Well, Sorry, let's go. Yeah. We gotta hurry up. I don't think uh, she would be giving us this this information if it wasn't like vitally important.
2: Let's go find some some fellow adventurers.
0: I know where we can find one. Let's go.
2: One. I think we need more than one.
0: Well, I know one. I can convince pretty quickly. Let's go. All right, we'll pick it up there as you go to a new location in
3: Waterdeep. With a full belly, so
0: much re Um, you take uh, twelve points of food baby damage from all the food that you ate.
1: Worth it. <laughs> uh, worth it. Worth
3: it.